listening to Impact Insights, a communications podcast by the Impact Agency. Welcome to the Impact Insights podcast. You have Francis Dwyer, the General Manager of the Impact Agency with you today, and I'm joined by my illustrious CEO, aka ballerina with wings, Nicole <laughs> Webb. <laughs> Hello, everybody. <laughs> Do we need to explain the ballerina we do? um, We've been using this awesome um, platform called Squadcast uh, and with our awesome in-house producer. And one of the things that happens is it auto-generates funny names when you log in at the beginning. And if you don't edit them yourself, then you get bizarre names. And I think mine was like Lost Astronaut. Neat 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 Astronaut. astronaut. You were a neat astronaut. Very tidy. Uh, and today Nicole is a ballerina with wings so yeah yeah, let's be creative wherever you can let's fly so we've been feeling a bit reflective of late um you know a lot of uh this year has been about responding to the moment and anticipating the next move as opposed to getting carried away with thinking too far ahead but earlier in the pandemic we decided to do that anyway, to do an internal exercise with our management team on considering what the sort of big trends and um, I guess shifts would be in the political, economic, um, sector-based, technology, technology, social landscape. And today we thought it'd be a good idea to revisit some of those sort of crystal ball Um, predictions that we made and consider how they've actually played out and how they're relating to the way that organisations and um, governments and brands are communicating and and where maybe some new areas of focus have arisen out of those trends. So over to you, Nicole, what was the first area that we really delved into (laughs) when we undertook this exercise? (laughs) So this this was back in um, towards the end of April. So Mm. um, back then, we said that there would be stability within the leadership. There was no room for internal politics. Now is the time to be authoritative. Um, And then the next point we made was, but the opposition will start the blame game. And Mm. um, that's certainly been the case in Victoria. So we predicted that one. (laughs) There's sort of been a a bit of a tipping point, I think, that um, very much through that earlier phase you know, after years in Australia, certainly at a federal level of a, a rotating musical chairs situation at the top of our major parties, that it definitely wasn't the time or place for that sort of thing because I don't know that anyone really wanted the top job either. That helped. Um, but then also that at some point there's a there's a tipping point where the opposition at a federal or state level has to start, you know, demonstrating that perhaps a better job could be done or the way that they would approach things. But what's been interesting, I think, is that um, rather than it being the traditional focus of right versus left and, you know, standing government versus opposition, the, the key dynamic that we're seeing play out at a political level is the national cabinet. The new national cabinet seems to be the sort of centre of our read of political discourse and the dramatic differences in approach from state to state seem to be the thing that we're as individuals identifying with but also the focal point for media in terms of unpacking what's happening in the political landscape. 
Yeah, so that national cabinet seemed to come together quite well in the beginning, didn't it? And um, we all felt like we were all on the same page. But um, I think what's happened, <laughs> this is my take on it, um, mm. I think um, Scott Morrison's been getting a little bit frustrated that he's not getting the headlines that he deserves as a Prime Minister. So they've started, he and um, Josh Frydenberg have come out and started bagging the, the, the Victorian government and the way they've handled the the second wave. So mm. I don't know. Um, the, the, the next point that we predicted was there was going to be um, this um, feeling of statism where there would be more disunity between the states and the federal government. The states find their, We're definitely their own seeing that play out. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely we're seeing that. And we've seen the really interesting um, sort of um, individual approaches of, of a premier and even right down to the tone of delivery of messaging really um, grinding the gears or getting under the skin of other um, states and a sense of I really feel like like state of origin has been playing out <laughs> on a political level. Sure, we didn't have, you know, the, the NRL game. It's, it's, it's due to be played later in the year. But, um, yeah, this sense that, like, people are chanting Queenslander at, at, at Anastasia Palaszczuk's conferences as though, uh, you know, their identity is taken up by the fact that they've finally been able to close that border to the Southerners, you know. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but we have to remember too, there's two elections coming up in the two states that are holding firm on these border closures and it's playing out well for them from a voter perspective. So we, it would probably be naive of us to think that this is not um, a political play as well as a, a, a safety. Like safety is obviously first and foremost in every state and across all levels of government right now, but there there has to be a political element oh, at play absolutely. as well. Like why why change something up when it's landing well with the voters at a time when you're leading up to an election? But um, I heard uh, the New South Wales Premier today um, who's who's traditionally been very much with uh, the, the, it's not a very flattering term to say fence sitting, but been very neutral on her opinions or criticisms of other you know leaders in the country. But I think today finally sort of gave a little on how she's feeling about our northern neighbours' um, decision making on future border reopenings and timings and so on. She, so she's been been poking the bear a little bit right a little the, bit but in a very gently bit. gently way yeah, compared yeah. to some of the other commentary and then I think the reality is is that it's very easy for all of the states to have an opinion of what's happening in Victoria but they're living it right now and mm. uh it's it's something very different to be right in the thick of this um attempted you know staged move out of lockdown than to be sitting on the outside living a relatively normal life um, and having an opinion of how they can do it differently or better. So that rebuilding theme, though, that we also talked about um, back in April has been a consistent um, thing. You know, I think back to previous uh, federal elections about being, you know, jobs, jobs, jobs and jobs and growth and moving forward and all of these words, I think, that uh, we're going to build our way out of it, aren't we? Build our way out of it seems to be a big um, focal point. And even at a state level, there's huge amounts of spend and planning in that area. So um, any way that that can be fast-tracked or brought to the fore, I think, is uh, what we're going to be seeing more of at a political level. I think the um, the bit that hasn't come to fruition as much as we perhaps thought was the nationalism. I think we're so focused on statism that perhaps we're not 
as, and it could be because we're an island nation and we're not, we don't have any people to physically have to fly here or come on a boat to get here versus just, you know, cross over a land border. But um, we're kind of in a bubble. I mean, you had a, had a conference call with our partners in the UK and um, other parts of the world um, just in the last week and you were reflecting on the oh, difference they're between... They're, they're shocked mm. that, that we're still um, being very cautious compared to um, like the UK, the, our sister agency in the UK went back into the office this week. You know, we're doing split shifts. They're, um, they're just amazed at how cautious we are as a nation around the pandemic mm. when everybody and else then is I out, guess... you know, everyone else is out partying and here we are going, oh, we'll just sit quietly at home. Yeah. Thanks so much. It's interesting. I think that um, because we as a nation, other than this second wave flare up in Victoria have had relatively low case numbers and um, thankfully, while still very sad, everyone with that we've lost much lower mortality rates, but um when you look at us versus other nations, like, yeah, like the UK, their pubs have been open the whole time, even though schools have been closed and their kind of focal points of where transmission can or will occur seems to be quite different than ours in Australia and their tolerance of rates of infection seems to be set at a different level, whereas maybe because mm. we got a lid on things quickly in Australia, we're like, well, we did say we'd do suppression but I don't know. I feel like Victoria's roadout looks a lot more like eradication than <laughs> suppression. Yeah. So, yeah, I think we're so focused on what's happening here, maybe a little less aware of um, just how fortunate and sheltered we are. A part of me is a little bit worried that it's another version of the GFC where not everybody's quite as aware of just how big and bad this thing looks all around the world versus our lived experience right here and right now. So, Fry, who do you think should be the keeper of that, um, what it means to be an Australian? Is, is that the role of the, the Prime Minister and the federal government to, to show the country just how proud they, they should be of, of where we've come mm. out, of the, out of the pandemic? I'm just wondering. I think a little bit of that's starting to bubble to the surface. I think that, um, like, the the language around like New South Wales having the gold standard in contact tracing and let's get that happening across the country and let's it's not like just a political thing. Yeah. Yeah. I felt that was a political thing for him just to Did you? I felt that it was like not just about giving it to the other states and their approaches. It also felt like it was, you know, Australia's on top of Australia as a whole is a gold, like a gold standard because of the way that we're approaching this. But the other thing is I don't know that I want a middle-aged, mid, like, you know, without being too rude here, but a middle-aged, middle-class white man to dictate what it means to be Australian because traditionally the tropes that they roll out every election campaign are just tired and one-dimensional. I think we have an opportunity coming out of our statism mindset to perhaps really you know, rewrite that story of what it means to be Australian in a genuine, multicultural, multifaceted way. Um, there's such some of the really positive things to come out of this period is that there's a lot of tension and friction in parts of society that's then unearthing conversations that have been, you know, pushed down or, or, or simmering away but not addressed for a long time. 
So maybe this is an opportunity for us to, we're a really young nation in, in the scheme of things. Maybe it's an opportunity for us to reshape what our identity is in the world um, in, in a particular way. Of course, government has to play a role in that, but maybe it's more as a facilitator rather than a than directing what it is. You know, maybe it's about facilitating and and providing platforms for various people in our society to contribute to what it means to be yeah. Australian. But um, well, I guess well, from a just, yeah, you sorry, were going to say no. I was just going to say um, moving on from the political predictions Mm. that we made um we also had looked at some what we thought was going to happen socially with within um australia and one of the the first stop point that comes up is um cocooning the the old faith popcorn Mm. uh terminology that was coined back in the early 80s where staying in one's home um to protect yourself from the modern world you know keep the modern world at bay there was a you know looming nuclear incineration, Um, it was the harassment of daily life. So Faith Popcorn coined this term cocooning and, um, you know, you'd stay in one's one's home and and watch VCRs and listen to your compact (laughs) disc players. Um, We've got it pretty good these days, don't we, on the cocooning? (laughs) I mean, everything gets delivered to our door. We've got all of the streaming services. We've got endless content at our fingertips. It's not really the same dire it's mentally draining of course and emotionally draining but we are able to remain connected and I think we've seen a lot of that but I think even I think even introverts are craving a little a little outdoor connection time I mean I I don't dare to speak on their behalf I know I'm not one myself but uh yeah I think that um even those of us who really love our little cocooning feeling like even the best introverted cocooner in the world, if they're living in Melbourne right now, is feeling it. Um, sure. the, 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 the sh- I think there's a balance between a conscious choice to retreat and um, something that's imposed upon us. I think, um, yeah, the, the frame around that definitely shifts our thinking. And, and similarly with um, our approach to working from home and remotely and everything, which is another thing that we, you know, talked about back then and that it's here to stay. For us, we've been phasing back into the office, as you said earlier, with a split team strategy where it's about, you know, employee safety, but also options, options that are going to allow each individual and us as a team to work as best we can in a way that um, enriches and, and challenges and also comforts us and makes us feel supported. Because whilst I'm so incredibly proud of how in, how enormously um, brilliant everyone has been at transitioning to remote working. I think it's very easy to have a um, accelerated like log on log off back to back kind of um, energy, which um, can be great from an execution perspective and an efficiency perspective. But if you're being too stringent in that approach, are you missing out on? the organic creativity and the lateral thinking and the collaboration and the social connection that ultimately stitches together a culture of a business. Um, So I'm really enjoying that option of going into the office every other week and seeing um, colleagues that are, you know, in the the physical sense socially distanced is being a nice balance for, for us. And I know some of our clients are doing the same thing at the moment. Yeah, sure. 
Um, mm. One of the other social predict- predictions we made was, you know, cooking at home because we're eating out less, but we're experimenting more and planning um, our purchases ahead, particularly from um, a supermarket. We're not just dropping in and dropping out of a, a supermarket to pick up the few things that we need for that night's dinner. We're actually doing a, a thoughtful shop. What do we need mm. for the week? Mm. There was an article in um, the New York Times actually today around this this very thing as well and um, how much supermarkets are making over in, in, in the States because when they're not eating out as much as they used to and they are cooking more at home. And even just going into the supermarkets here in Australia, the, the shelves are bare. I, I, the, I don't know if it's um, a conscious thing that the supermarkets are doing and streamlining the, the products that they have on shelf, but it's really hard to find the items that you need that you used to buy on a you know regular basis. It's, I'm finding it really difficult to find um, the, the, the things that I need. Less, the, 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 they're not there. I'm having issues every week when I go in that yeah, there's less right. and less things that we normally buy. They're not there on the shelves. Now, I don't know if that's a supply thing because we are cooking more and mm. eating at home more that, that there's just not enough things on the shelves. Sure. And we know the other thing is a lot of our produce um, has yeah. been affected by the bushfires and the drought, but we're, maybe we're just feeling it in a different way because there is that scarcity in other items as well, in other retailers or in other parts of the supermarket that it's having compounding effects but a lot of those things have more to do with the other challenge environmental challenges we've faced this year yeah, but sure. um, that it's funny you mentioned that um trend I was listening to um one of my favorite podcasts is the briefing with um Tom Tilly you mean you mean other than ours Francis I have so many ours is definitely <laughs> the top although probably shouldn't say that that just sounds really narcissistic um but you know I love I love everything from Shameless Podcast and then Rushiano right through to um, our client, the Executive Connection Tech Live. I love their podcast. It's got great business insights. But um, one of my sort of daily, it's like the squiz or the signal, there's another one called The Briefing, um, hosted by Tom Tilly and co-hosted by Jan Fran and Jamila Rizvi and Annika Smethurst. And um, the other day they did the top 10 most searched things on Google in the last six months. And, you know, unsurprisingly in Australia, you know, seven of the top 10 related to coronavirus in some way, shape or form. And then um, the other three were like these um, aberrations of pop culture or political um, or social culture things kind of bursting through the wall-to-wall, you know, COVID focus. Um, One of them was what does WAP mean? But we don't need to delve into that one right now. (laughs) I think I, I googled that as well. Yeah, I think a lot of people did. This whack, whack thing. Um, I think it's pronounced whack, but anyway. Uh, and then the other one was um, what's a simp, which is apparently um, uh, the former opposition leader Bill Shorten was on Insiders and referred to Scott Morrison's um, relationship with. Um, a foreign nation that he was being a simp and the host asked him what that meant and he's like oh you know soft um so that apparently created this little flurry of search of what it means um it's got problematic origins actually that that term uh and then the third one was um 
uh, DIY related. It was like, how to bake bread? How do I make sourdough starter? Where do I get sourdough starter? Um, how do I, and there was this whole sort of microcosm of DIY related searches and the Google um, spokesperson said that Australia over-indexed on those trends of, you know, that we're a nation of DIYers. But the one most shameful thing that I think none of us really wanted to predict or admit is that our nation was more obsessed with toilet paper than any other nation in the world. <laughs> and the recent yes. uh, wave two lockdown in Melbourne proved that we again could go back to hoarding toilet paper, which is a bit sad. <laughs> well, following that incident, um, I now subscribe to Who Gives a Crap? So I get a huge box of toilet paper delivered every three months and it's, it's fabulous. I don't have to worry about it. Don't have to worry about uh, it at all. <laughs> One of the other predictions we made was a resurgence around that making self-sufficiency, you know, veggie patches, a mm, bit of mm. a way of, taking, of us taking control. Um, I saw you've made your first harvest. <laughs> <laughs> the three smallest cherry tomatoes you have ever seen. But isn't it satisfying to just take that from your own little urban I garden? I, I passed, passed the small bowl to Caitlin and said, look, and she ate, ate them up. And I went, oh, God, I didn't even get to taste them. So, <laughs> Well, still that but sense yeah. of achievement. <laughs> yeah, so my Google searches are how do I make sure my tomato plant survives the mm. next couple of months because um, they're looking a bit scraggly even though they produced um, the three beautiful cherry tomatoes. <laughs> Most expensive cherry tomatoes ever, but that's Most okay. <laughs> um, also in that list was um, this bubble. We're staying in our own village, reducing our risk, making decisions on who to do what with. And I think that's still um, relevant today. That was definitely in Australia and bubble. definitely in Sydney. Yeah. I think that, you know, whilst our, our, our friends in, um, in the UK and other parts of the world in our network um, find it quite staggering that we're still living under such sort of um, strict and, and controlled measures uh, in our day-to-day lives. I think that we're all kind of holding on to that as the reason that we're in a position to have these freedoms. Um, and I think that, yeah, what's happened in Victoria scared the crap out of the rest of us. We don't want to end up yeah, like that. Absolutely. Mm. absolutely. And um, I know Caitlin jumped on a train on the weekend going to Patty's markets and I, I had to say no you had to come she had to come home I mean it's all about keeping her safe but also making sure that she keeps her family safe as well so having those discussions with you know your 13 year old daughter is um it's not a discussion that I thought I'd ever have yeah it's really tough I think um you know your sense of identity particularly when you're in your teens is very much reflective of um who you connect with and see and I remember I remember the weekend feeling like a year between seeing my friends on a Friday and a Monday, you know. So I really do feel for, I think kids have been incredible in their resilience in the way that they've adapted to um, to this pandemic and to the shifts in their lives. And, yeah, it, but it does create a lot of conversations that perhaps we never imagined that we'd be having. But similarly, it's coming down to trust, I think, that, even in the workplace, um, as we've phased back in and as we see our clients doing the same, tentatively revisiting the idea of face-to-face meetings with clients for those that have, you know, similar policies to us. It's You're, you're actually unpacking conversations that around trust and around um, 
compliance and culture of businesses and, and how seriously those businesses are taking it and what precautions are in place or COVID safe plans, things that perhaps you wouldn't have dug away at in client relationships previously. Um, we're really being much more um, looking at those things with more scrutiny and also putting ourselves under greater scrutiny. Like we have really gone above and beyond to best practice as we have re-entered the workforce, even though we're a relatively small organisation compared to many out there, what there's no harm in in being more diligent or, or ticket, you know, crossing every T and dotting every I as as we. And I think, have- I think that from a communications perspective as well, that's what we should be doing anyway. That's what our clients should be doing. That's what our companies should be doing. They should be going above and beyond. They should be showing that they are a COVID safe business. What what practices they put in place? They need to communicate that. So the, the customers feel comfortable when they go to that particular business or Definitely. they buy something from that business. Yeah, because the absence of that ultimately leaves it open to conjecture and concern and people may just vote by not coming at all. You know, if they arrive at a venue that doesn't have a QR code to download or if they um, have a client that, um, you know, wants to meet in a boardroom of 12 people that's small um, without social distancing and it it shouldn't come down to awkward social um, situations where you're confronted with it in the moment and kind of have to go oh I don't know if I feel comfortable with this like everyone should be aiming to overcome any sense of trepidation and ensure that people feel comfortable and ensure those measures are taken into account ahead of and just talk about it be open about it what do people feel comfortable about I know that we've had an active um one-to-one and survey-based feedback loop happening with staff throughout this period and check-in points with clients along the way as well about how they're going, what they feel comfortable with, how they're transitioning, how we're transitioning, how do we keep working best together, keeping that alive communication rather than an start point, end point, traditional phased approach has to be open and nimble throughout the period because things can change. Yeah, absolutely. Um, finally, I mean, there's, there's, we've got a lot on this list. Um, and I'm just, I'm love just to a bit of crystal me. balling. I think a, a lot of people have, have avoided it this year because, gosh, who knows what's going to happen. But um, I, I, I am cherry picking. Um, one of the things <laughs> that we did predict was that pet ownership would be up. And oh, I, I believe that is. I'm a bit worried about that. Only because I own a dog that like for 11 years now, that has uh, separation anxiety. And I'm really <laughs> worried about all these people that have adopted pets while they've been home so much and now they're phasing back to work. I think there's going to be like an epidemic of anxious pets who are missing their owners. <laughs> like, what do you mean you leave the house without me? What is this? I think more workplaces are going to have to become pet friendly to help with the anxious pet pandemic <laughs> that's going to come. Exactly right. <laughs> Dog, dog, dog whisperers or pet whisperers are going yeah, to be on the rise. Yeah, that's, that's not going to be on the rise for sure. <laughs> um, and the final thing that um, that we wanted to talk about today was around privacy and hacking. So mm. from a technological point of view, the, some of the things that we've seen, particularly in the last, God, even in the last week with Service New South Wales, um, uh, that there has been hacking of private data me as well has have has received a, a notice from the organisation that I have my um, car loan through mm-hmm. to say that my information has been um, accessed as well. So I've just gone back to them to find out what the hell 
mm. has been accessed so I can do something about it. We've seen earlier this year there was a significant um, sophisticated cyber attack um, on a number of um, government and non-government organisations um, that really has been a big catalyst in tensions between our nation and China um, because it was pretty much finger pointing from the get-go there that that was a state-based um, attack. But more recently there's been another surge and then, um, yeah, you mentioned the Service New South Wales breach. And I think we ha- what we have to remember is that no organisation is immune to um, cyber attacks. Um, it's not always a enormously sophisticated state-based foreign <laughs> government-related issue. It can be um, something that can affect small businesses and medium-sized businesses. I know we've done um, some inter- met some really interesting people through the Executive Connection, our client that's a network of CEOs around um, CEO concerns, and this was um, late last year actually. And interestingly, in the top five concerns was cybersecurity and that it's really shifted in the last decade and, and five years in particular from being a an issue that uh, leaders think of as something exclusively for the IT department and the CIO to focus on to something that actually encompasses culture, leadership and communication because um, a lot of the stats actually reveal that the door into uh, breaches and attacks is often through employee behaviour or, um, you know, simple um, accidents and, and, and errors made by staff members or people who have access to your systems, uh, you know, nudging that door open for someone to get, get in. So um, even from the perspective of communication internally and with customers and clients, it's got to make sure that those policies are lived, that it's reflected in behaviours, but also that when something does happen, you respond quickly and you communicate frequently. Like, do we really think that waiting for a letter to arrive in the mail by Christmas from Service New South Wales to let us know whether or not someone accessed our birth certificate and other various, you know, important ID? It's too late. That's a really long time. I get it. It's a big job. It's over 100,000 people have been affected and they've got to do their due diligence and know what's happened. But I feel like a more effective and frequent form of communication plan coming out of that attack is required. They need to look at this like crisis comms rather than just compliance comms. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and maybe all organisations yeah. need to look at as part of their cybersecurity. And I think, that you know, we're all working from home. We're all being a bit more tech savvy than we have been in the past. So there's more opportunity to be hacked, right? That's right. Yeah, working on different networks and with different firewalls. And so we need to think differently about our policies and how we live in live and enact them. Um, if anyone's interested in um, mm. seeing our, our predictions, we're happy to share them with you and um, just um, message us at um, impact at the impactagency.com.au. And I'm keen to know from others too, what were your sort of crystal ball or musings earlier in the pandemic after the initial shock and how do you think things have played out um, and particularly in particular sectors? We'd love to know we've obviously worked closely with our clients in the various sectors that we work in, but have you seen things play out differently to what you anticipated? Yeah. Interesting times ahead yet again too. So, mm-hmm. all right, I am Nicole Webb. I'm the CEO of the Impact Agency and with me has been Francis Dwyer, um, my beautiful general manager. 
Um, we all hope you have enjoyed today, today's podcast and we look forward to joining, um, to joining you or you joining us perhaps in a couple of weeks' time. But um, again, yeah, thanks for indulging us in our crystal ball <laughs> reflections today. <laughs> Stay safe.